Section 3 of A Soldier's Pay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner. Chapter 1, Part 3. Mrs. Powers lay in her bed, aware of her long body beneath strange sheets, hearing the hushed night sounds of a hotel, muffled footfalls along mute carpeted corridors, discreet opening and shutting of doors, somewhere a murmurous pulse of machinery, all with that strange propensity which sounds anywhere else soothing have, when heard in a hotel, for keeping you awake. Her mind and body, warming to the old familiarity of sleep, became empty, then, as she settled her body to the bed, shaping it for slumber, it filled with a remembered, troubling sadness. She thought of her husband, youngly dead in France, in a recurrence of fretful exasperation with having been tricked by a wanton fate, a joke amusing to no one. Just when she had calmly decided that they had taken advantage of a universal hysteria for the purpose of getting of each other a brief ecstasy, just when she had decided calmly that they were better quit of each other with nothing to mar the memory of their three days together and had written him so, wishing him luck, she must be notified casually and impersonally that he'd been killed in action so casually, so impersonally, as if Richard Powers, with whom she'd spent three days, were one man, and Richard Powers, commanding a platoon in the X Division, were another, and she, being young, must again know all the terror of parting, of that passionate desire to cling to something concrete in a dark world, in spite of war departments. He had not even got her letter. This, in some way, seemed the infidelity— having him die still believing in her, bored though they both probably were. She turned feeling sheets like water, warming by her bodily heat upon her legs. Oh, damn! Damn, what a rotten trick you played on me! She recalled those nights during which they had tried to eradicate tomorrows from the world. Two rotten tricks, she thought. Anyway, I know what I'll do with the insurance, she added wondering what Dick thought about it, if he did know or care. Her shoulder rounded upward into her vision. The indication of her covered, turning body swelled and died away towards the foot of the bed. She lay staring down the tunnel of her room, watching the impalpable angles of furniture, feeling through plastered smug walls a rumour of spring outside. The air shaft was filled with the prophecy of April come again into the world, like a heedless idiot, into a world that had forgotten spring. The white connecting door took the vague indication of a transom and held it in a mute and luminous plane, and obeying an impulse, she rose and slipped on a dressing gown. The door opened quietly under her hand. The room, like hers, was a suggestion of furniture, identically vague. She could hear Mahone's breathing, and she found a light switch with her fingers. Under his scarred brow he slept. The light, full and sudden, on his closed eyes did not disturb him, and she knew in an instinctive flash what was wrong with him, why his motions were hesitating, ineffectual. "'He's going blind,' she said, bending over him. He slept, and after a while there were sounds without the door. She straightened up swiftly, and the noises ceased. 
Then the door opened to a blundering key, and Gilligan entered, supporting Cadet Low, glassy-eyed and quite drunk. Gilligan, standing his lax companion upright, said, "'Good afternoon, ma'am.' Low muttered wetly, and Gilligan continued, "'Look at this lonely mariner I got here. Sail on, oh, proud and lonely,' he told his attached and aimless burden. Cadet Low muttered again, not intelligible. His eyes were like two oysters. "'Huh?' asked Gilligan. "'Come on, be a man. Speak to the nice lady.' Cadet Low repeated himself liquidly, and she whispered, "'Shh, be quiet.' "'Oh,' said Gilligan with surprise, "'Lute's asleep, huh? "'What's he want to sleep for this time of day?' Low, with quenchless optimism, essayed speech again, and Gilligan, comprehending, said, "'That's what you want, is it? "'Why couldn't you come out like a man and say it? "'Wants to go to bed for some reason,' he explained to Mrs. Powers. "'That's where he belongs,' she said and Gilligan, with alcoholic care, led his companion to the other bed, and with the exaggerated caution of the inebriate, laid him upon it. Low, drawing his knees up, sighed, and turned his back to them. But Gilligan, dragging at his legs, removed his puttees and shoes, taking each shoe in both hands and placing it on a table. She leaned against the foot of Mahone's bed, fitting her long thigh to the hard rail until he had finished. At last, Low, freed of his shoes, turned, sighing to the wall, and she said, "'How drunk are you, Joe?' "'Not very, ma'am. What's wrong? Lute need something?' Mahone slept, and Cadet Low immediately slept. "'I want to talk to you, Joe, about him,' she added quickly, feeling Gilligan's stare. "'Can you listen, or had you rather go to bed and talk it over in the morning?' Gilligan, focusing his eyes, answered, "'Why, now suits me. Always oblige a lady.' Making her decision suddenly, she said, "'Come in my room, then.' "'Sure, let me get my bottle, and I'm your man.' She returned to her room while he sought his bottle, and when he joined her she was sitting on her bed, clasping her knees wrapped in a blanket. Gilligan drew up a chair. "'Joe, do you know he's gone blind?' she said abruptly. After a time her face became a human face, and holding it in his vision, he said, I know more than that. He's going to die. Die? Yes, ma'am, if I ever seen death in a man's face, it's in his. God damn this world, he burst out suddenly. Shh, she whispered. That's right, I forgot, he said swiftly. She clasped her knees, huddled beneath the blanket, changing the position of her body as it became cramped, feeling the wooden headboard of the bed, wondering why there were not iron beds, wondering why everything was as it was. Iron beds, why you deliberately took certain people to break your intimacy, why these people died, why you yet took others. Will my death be like this, fretting and exasperating? Am I cold by nature, or have I spent all my emotional coppers that I don't seem to feel things like others? Dick, Dick, ugly and dead. Gilligan sat brittlely in his chair, focusing his eyes with an effort, having those instruments of vision evade him, slimy as broken eggs. Lights completing a circle, an orbit, she with two faces sitting on two beds, clasping forearms around her knees. Why can't a man be very happy or very unhappy? It's only a sort of pale mixture of the two, like beer when you want a shot, or a drink of water. Neither one nor the other. She moved and drew the blanket closer about her. Spring in an air shaft. 
the rumor of spring, but in a room steam heat suggested winter dying away. Let's have a drink, Joe. He rose, careful and brittle, and walking with meticulous deliberation, he fetched a carafe and glasses. She drew a small table near them, and Gilligan prepared two drinks. She drank and set the glass down. He lit a cigarette for her. It's a rotten old world, Joe. You damn right, and dying ain't the half of it. Dying? In this case, I mean. Trouble is, he probably won't die soon enough. Not die soon enough. Gilligan drained his glass. I got the low down on him, see? He's got a girl at home. Folks got him engaged when they was young, before he went off to war. And do you know what she's going to do when she sees his face? She asked, staring at her. At last, her two faces became one face, and her hair was black. Her mouth was like a scar. Oh, no, Joe, she wouldn't do that, she sat up. The blanket slipped from her shoulders, and she replaced it, watching him intently. Gilligan, breaking the orbit of visible things by an effort of will, said, Don't you kid yourself. I've seen her picture, and the last letter he had from her. He didn't show them to you, she said quickly. That's all right about that. I seen him. Joe, you didn't go through his things. Hell, ma'am, ain't I and you trying to help him? Suppose I did do something that ain't exactly according to Holy Hoyle. You know damn well that I can help him if I don't let a whole lot of don'ts stop me. And if I know I'm right, there ain't any don'ts or anything else going to stop me. She looked at him and he hurried on. I mean, you and I know what to do for him, but if you're always letting a gentleman don't do this and a gentleman don't do that interfere, you can't help him. Do you see? But what makes you so sure she will turn him down? Why, I tell you, I seen that letter. All the old bunk about knights of the air and the romance of battle and that even the fat crying ones outgrow soon as the excitement is over and uniforms and being wounded ain't only not stylish no more, but it is troublesome. But aren't you taking a lot for granted not to have seen her even? I've seen that photograph, one of them flighty-looking pretty ones with lots of hair, just the sort would have got herself engaged to him. How do you know it is still on? Perhaps she's forgotten him, and he probably doesn't remember her, you know. That ain't it. If he don't remember her, he's all right. But if he will know his folks, he will want to believe that something in this world ain't turned upside down. They were silent a while. Then Gilligan said, I wish I could have known him before. He's the kind of a son I would have liked to have. He finished his drink. Joe, how old are you? Thirty-two, ma'am. How did you ever learn so much about us? She asked with interest, watching him. He grinned briefly. It ain't knowing. It's just saying things. I think I'd done it through practice, by talking so much. He replied with sardonic humor. I talk so much I gotta say the right thing sooner or later. You don't talk much yourself. Not much, she agreed. She moved carelessly, and the blanket slipped entirely, exposing her thin nightdress. Raising her arms and twisting her body to replace it, her long shank was revealed, and her turning ankle and her bare foot. Gilligan, without moving, said, Mom, let's get married. She huddled quickly in the blanket again, already knowing a faint disgust with herself. Bless your heart, Joe. Don't you know my name is Mrs.? Sure, and I know, too, you ain't got any husband. I don't know where he is or what you done with him, but you ain't got a husband now. Goodness, I'm beginning to be afraid of you. You know too much. You're right. 
My husband was killed last year. Gilligan, looking at her, said, Rotten luck, and she, tasting again a faint warm sorrow, bowed her head to her arched, clasped knees. Rotten luck, that's exactly what it was, what everything is, even sorrow is a fake now. She raised her face, her pallid face, beneath her black hair, scarred with her mouth. Joe, that was the only sincere word of condolence I ever had. Come here. Gilligan went to her, and she took his hand, holding it against her cheek. Then she removed it, shaking back her hair. You're a good fellow, Joe. If I felt like marrying anybody now, I'd take you. I'm sorry I played that trick, Joe. Trick? repeated Gilligan, gazing upon her black hair. Then he said, Oh, noncommittally. But we haven't decided what to do with that poor boy in there, she said with brisk energy, clasping her blanket. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. Are you sleepy? Not me, he answered. I don't think I ever want to sleep again. Neither do I. She moved across the bed, propping her back against the headboard. Lie down here and let's decide on something. Sure, agreed Gilligan. I'd better take off my shoes first, ruin the hotel's bed. To hell with the hotel's bed, she told him. Put your feet on it. Gilligan lay down, shielding his eyes with his hand. After a time, she said, Well, what's to be done? We gotta get him home first, Gilligan said. I'll wire his folks tomorrow. His old man is a preacher, see? But it's that damn girl bothers me. He sure ought to be let die in peace. But what else to do, I don't know. I know about some things, he explained, but after all women can guess and be nearer right than whatever I could decide on. I don't think anyone could do much more than you. I'd put my money on you every time. He moved, shading his eyes again. I don't know. I'm good so far, but then you got to have more than just sense. Say, why don't you come with the general and me? I intend to, Joe, her voice came from beyond his shielding hand. I think I intended to all the time. She is in love with him. But he only said, Good for you, but I knowed you'd do the right thing. All right with your people, is it? Yes, but what about money? Money? Well, for what he might need, you know. He might get sick anywhere. Lord, I cleaned up in a poker game and I ain't had time to spend it. Money's all right. That ain't any question, he said roughly. Yes, money's all right. You know, I have my husband's insurance. He lay silent, shielding his eyes. His khaki legs, marring the bed, ended in clumsy shoes. She nursed her knees, huddling in her blanket. After a space, she said, Sleep, Joe? It's a funny world, ain't it? He asked irrelevantly, not moving. Funny? Sure. Soldier dies and leaves you money, and you spend the money helping another soldier die comfortable? Ain't that funny? I suppose so. Everything is funny. Horribly funny. Anyway, it's nice to have it all fixed, he said after a while. He'll be glad you're coming along. Dear Dead Dick. Mahone, under his scar, sleeping. Dick, my dearest one. She felt the headboard against her head through her hair, felt the bones of her long shanks against her arms, clasping them, nursing them, saw the smug, impersonal room like an appointed tomb in which how many, many discontents, desires, passions had died, 
high above a world of joy and sorrow and lust for living, high above impervious trees occupied solely with maternity and spring. Dick, Dick, dead, ugly, Dick. Once you were alive and young and passionate and ugly, after a time you were dead, dear Dick. That flesh, that body which I loved and did not love, your beautiful, young, ugly body, dear Dick, became now a seething of worms like new milk. Dear Dick. Gilligan, Joseph, late a private, a Democrat by enlistment and numbered like a convict, slept beside her, his boots given him gratis by Democrats of a higher rating among Democrats, innocent and awkward upon a white spread of rented cloth, immaculate and impersonal. She evaded her blanket and, reaching her arms, swept the room with darkness. She slipped beneath the covers, settling her cheek on her palm. Gilligan, undisturbed, snored, filling the room with a homely, comforting sound. Dick, dear, ugly, dead. End of section three. Read by Sandra.